So if there's, if there's one thing I want you all to leave today knowing, I want you all to leave today knowing, I would, I would love you to be brave today, if I can say something to you today, to be brave more than absolutely anything today. Whether you're a mum, whether you are a dad who's stepping in for a mum, whether you're not a mum, today I want you to be brave And I'm going to use the story of Esther this morning from poverty to the palace in order to show you what a remarkable, what a brave woman she was. And I want us to learn so much from her. I want to give you a wee bit of background all about Esther. We've been studying it in our small group. So apologies to my small group who have heard a little bit of this. But I just felt on that night I really wanted to share this with you on Mother's Day. And so Esther, Esther, we're looking at the, the remarkable woman who lived during the reign of the notorious king Exorcise. He was the king of the Persian Empire, and the Persian Empire was one of the largest of its kind up until this point. When King Exorcise, um, with him being the king, he was notorious for being a man of influence, wealth, and power. It tells us in Esther chapter 1, we learn that this king, I mean, you all said, somebody said to me, now don't be speaking too long this morning. I mean, he decides to have a party for 180 days. I mean, typical man. <laughs> he throws this party and he's flexing his wealth. He wants to show high-ranking officials his authority, his power, and all that he owns. So he throws the 180-day party. And he end that party, that's just not enough for him. He decides that he wants to celebrate for another seven days. It's just not good enough, 180 days. Let's go on for another seven days. It sounds like my neighbor. <laughs> Hope he's not listening. <laughs> that's the other side, if it's that one. <laughs> so anyway... He decides to throw a seven-day party. As if he hasn't shown off enough of what he owns, he decides, let's bring my wife in. Fashti. Let's show her off in front of all the men, all the high officials. And basically, he got a wee bit too drunk, and he lost himself, because he didn't realize that Fashti was just having none of it. And she simply said to him, there's no way you are parading me in front of all these men. And she stood up as a woman and she said, no. Now the result of that was she was banished away from exorcise. And she was, we don't really hear anything further about her in in, in the book of Esther. Now, I want to give you a wee, bit, a wee bit of a side note about King Exorcise, right? If you look into the history of him, get a wee glimpse of him. He's a wee bit of a crazy king, as we've already heard, the 180 days plus the seven. And history tells us, it was said that there was a storm that whipped up on the sea and it actually caused some damage to one of the bridges that Exorcise men had built on his behalf. And so he had the sea chastised for its bad behavior. He actually commanded one of his soldiers to go out and whip the sea with chains, 
This is a guy who definitely needs anger management. So he's very, very upset at what Queen Fasti does. So basically, she was banished forever. So what happens instead? We have the beauty pageant. Now, if your mother's here this morning, there's some of you love to get, go down to that Gabby and get your kids all dressed up. I remember Denise, she used to be down at the Gabby, getting all the dresses were the most expensive you could have bought, and she was always stunning, ready, and I don't know whether you put her in for those wee beauty pageants morning, but anyway, anyway, we dress our kids up and we think they look the best in the whole place, and they have the best outfits, and well, Esther didn't have a mommy. She was looked after by her uncle and by her cousin Mordecai. And this opportunity, well, whether you call it an opportunity to, be, to go into a beauty pageant with this king, who we already, to, to marry this king, who we already know is a pretty ruthless man. However, she finds herself in this place where she's being put in to a beauty pageant. What happens next is essentially this beauty pageant. The ancient historian Josephus tells us there's essentially 400 women that take part in this. But there's only one woman who catches the eye of the king, and that's our Esther. Now, overnight, Esther is taken from total obscurity, a wee orphan, to national prominence. Overnight, and she was made queen to, ex um, to exorcise. Now Esther has a Jewish cousin, who I've already said was Mordecai. And Mordecai gives Esther a wee bit of advice. And the advice is, don't tell anyone that you're Jewish. Don't tell anyone that you are from the nation of Israel, because if people find out, it could be very bad for you. Keep it a secret. And you know, that's exactly what Esther does. And you see, mums, ladies, there's, our children talk to us. They talk to, about, talk to us about things maybe they don't want to talk to anyone else about. Or maybe, maybe you're not a mum, and maybe there's a young person who comes to you and talks to you. Praise God for you, for that listening ear. And you know, she never said anything. She never said anything. She kept it in her heart, and she didn't tell anyone that she was a Jew. She basically kept her mouth shut, and she says nothing. And I know my husband would say, Athena, that's hard for you to do. <laughs> but Esther did this. And then we'll come to this character, Haman. Now, before I go on and read the scripture, shortly after King Exorcise, Eliphaz, um, shortly after this, king, the king elevates a man within his government, and he's a, um, to a very high position. And this man was Haman. Haman is basically a, a scoundrel. Um, he's classically a dirty politician. But now, because the king has elevated him to this high position, he has this tone of authority. And tied to this position is the fact that people have to bow down to him. Imagine this, he's out and about, and he passes some people, and they actually have to bow down in his presence. So it's like somebody walking along, and you have to literally bow down every time you see them or meet them. But there's one person who refuses to bow down, and that's Esther's cousin, Mordecai. 
When Haman learns that Mordecai won't bow, he said, basically, this is unacceptable. He says, you don't bow down to me. This is unacceptable. And then he finds out that he's a Jew, and he says, well, do you know what? You won't bow down to me, so I'm going to punish. I'm going to find a way to punish the whole people connected to you. I mean, they're all probably going, Mordecai, I'm going to kill you. That's all us tarred with the same brush. He wouldn't bow down. He wouldn't bow down. Do you know why he wouldn't bow down? Because his God was the God of the heavens and the earth. And his God was the God. And only he would bow down to his God. That's why. And you know, there's going to be situations you could put into and places you could put into. You have to make decisions and you have to say no. That's not for me. You have to turn a different direction and say, he's my God. He's first in my life. And mothers, there's going to be times when you are going to have to say to your children, this is not the right direction you're going in. And lead them in the, in the direction that, that's following wholeheartedly after God. And if they won't listen to you, then you get in your knees. That's what you do. You get in your knees. Because that's the only thing left to do. And when I say get in your knees, I'm talking about praying to the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings for your children. And you see Haman. Haman. Then Haman said to King Exorcise in Esther chapter 3, verse 8. There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the province of the kingdom who keep themselves separate. Basically, they do not intermingle with the rest of the population, that means. Their customs are different from those of all other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. So here's the deal, everyone. It's not, the, it's not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of, of silver. Now, that's a huge amount of money. So the king's administrators to the royal treasury to the king's administrators of the royal treasury. Now, this is basically the dirty politician saying, here, I'll give you this if you do this for me. I'll pay you this amount if you do this for me. Now, what I want you to understand is, so the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agate, enemy of the Jews. And he says, keep your money. Sure, look at me. 180 days party, seven days party after that. It's all mine anyway. I don't need your money. Keep it. But you know what? I give you my ring instead. I give you my authority instead. And that's really what Haman was looking for. He was looking for that because it gave him the chance then to destroy this whole nation of people. And, and the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. So there's a bounty now on every head of every Jew. Neighbors were turning against neighbors. And by the way, for hundreds and hundreds of years, the Israelites have been persecuted. For hundreds and hundreds of years, as a race, as an ethnic group, there have been attempts to annihilate them. And yet, they are still with us. Now, Haman, the text tells us, is an Agagite. Now, we know virtually nothing about the Agagites, and that's because that ethnic group 
has come and gone. They haven't been around for hundreds of years. There are a lot of ethnic groups that have come and gone, for example, the Hittites, the Amorites. And when was the last time you had lunch with an Amalekite? But the Israelites are still here. Even though all throughout history, people have made many attempts to try and wipe them off the face of the planet. Have you ever asked yourself the question, why are they still with us? And the Bible is full of accounts of where God rescues his people time and time and time and time again. And can I tell you this morning, you might be in a situation and I tell you, God will rescue you time and time and time and time again. You see, Mordecai takes action. And this is what Mordecai does. He's nothing left to do. Where have I put it now? Got these little bags of ashes and sackcloth. And you see, Mordecai takes action. You're saying, what's that all about? When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. He showed a public display. But he went out as far as the king's gate because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So what did Mordecai do? He got on his knees and he began to pray. And could you give out... Ellis, could you give out those little bags for me? Now, my husband and I, I, want, I love visual aids. You know what I'm like. So I wanted you just to see there's a, there's a little bit of ice in there and there's a, a wee bit of sackcloth. I want you to feel the sackcloth, how rough it is. He, he had, he, he was dressed in sackcloth and covered in ashes. Now, I decided to do this lastminute.com. So, of course, I had my husband running around getting cold, lighting the cold in the hottest day that we've had so far. Out in the middle of the back garden while the neighbours are looking over the fence. For it showed just a little bit of ashes, and Matt says, don't bring these out till the kids go out. <laughs> and I wanted to show you the sackcloth and the ashes. And this sackcloth and ashes. Now, when we were making these last night, spooning all the little ashes in. I think people were looking over the fence going, what are they putting in those little bags? And I'm shouting out, I'm just doing this for church tomorrow in a loud voice so the neighbor could hear. You can see the blinds in the top window. No, it's dark, but you can still see them looking over. But anyway, the point of this is to show you, this was really messy, really dirty. So it wasn't, if you were to take that out, go all over the place. He covered himself in sackcloth and ashes. And he was outside the palace gate. He was outside the gate while Esther was inside the gate. Now the sackcloth, this is really rough material and it's really uncomfortable. Ashes are symbolic of something being burnt essentially meant difficult times, hard times, uncomfortable, uncomfortable times, a time of mourning in the Jewish culture. 
Now he's outside the gate while Esther's inside the gate. He's sitting outside the, the palace gate. Now here's the thing. There's a huge difference as to what goes on inside the palace gate as to what goes on outside the palace gates. There's a huge difference of what's happening inside the palace gate. There's power, there's privilege, and there's influence. But outside the palace gate where Mordecai was, there's poverty and anonymity. And what that means, nobody really knew that person. You're unimportant. And you can feel, I'm in a situation, I'm outside the palace gate, and I can't see a way out of it. While Esther was inside that palace, living the life of luxury. Whereas Mordecai is outside the gate and he's pleading the case, there's absolutely no hope for the Jews. Can I tell you something? And this is something I said in a small group. Big doors swing on small hinges. Big doors swing on small hinges. And you might think, I am outside that palace gate, but big doors swing on small hinges. Mordecai had a job to do, and he was letting the people know, we are in a time of mourning here. This is a desperate situation for us. And he was saying, he was doing his part. He was doing what he had to do. He was being the influence that he could be in the situation that he was in. That's all he could do. When you think God is absent, that he isn't working, don't be deceived. God is working behind the scenes. Do you know what's interesting about the book of Esther, about this story? You know that God's name is never mentioned in the book of Esther. And yet the whole way through it, you can see how incredible God is working in the lives of the Jewish people, in the life of Esther, in the life of Mordecai, even though his name is never mentioned in the whole book of Esther. So there's Mordecai who's outside the palace gate and all seems hopeless, but recognize God does have somebody who's inside the gate and that is our Esther. Our little orphan, our incredible woman. This brings in a really important question to all of us. What sort of person does God use to advance his kingdom? And we often think, oh, it's that great missionary, or it's that super pastor who has thousands at his church. And do you know what? The story of Esther just totally, totally ruins that idea. Because God uses to advance his kingdom, he uses Mordecai, and he uses a little orphan. I want you to consider the people of God that he has used throughout what about Nehemiah? He was a city planner. What about David? He was a shepherd. What about Lydia? She was a professional businesswoman. And Daniel? He was a secondary school student. And then there's our Moses. He was 90 years old when God called him. You're not retired in the kingdom of God. And you're not too young for God to use you. God uses everyone to accomplish his purpose and his plans. And what's amazing about this is that here we have Mordecai. He's just doing his part, but there is someone else. There's someone else who needs to do her part. 
God uses everybody. We need solicitors. We need doctors. We need shop assistants. We need landscapers. We need teachers. We need mummies. We need daddies. We need everybody to do their part. Every person, every occupation is to be used in advancing the kingdom of God. Mordecai is doing his part. He's outside the gate displaying himself in sackcloth and ashes. Now Esther finds out about her cousin who's sitting in sackcloth covered in ashes. So she does this. This is her response. So then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for the annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal province know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spurs their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. Esther starts making excuses. Basically, this is what this part of the passage is saying. She says, do you know what? I can't go to the king, even though I'm in the palace. If I go to him, and he hasn't saw me in 30 days, so he's not interested in me. If I go to him, now there's 30 days have passed, so that's proof that he's not interested in me. If I go to him and ask to speak to him, if he doesn't hold out a scepter to me, I'm dead. So I don't really think I'm prepared to do that. Because I'm in the palace, I'm having a happy wee time here. I'm in a place of comfort. He's basically, she's basically saying... And she's given her excuses. And you know, there's times when we are called to do things that we don't like to do. And there's times that God calls us out of our comfort zone to places where we don't necessarily want to go or do. And in this situation, Esther's saying, this is one of these times. I'm quite happy inside the gate. I'm quite happy. I'm safe here. And then this is what it says. Essentially, Mordecai says, Esther, you have nothing to lose, but everything to gain. Because if you keep silent, it will be discovered that you are a Jew. So if you deny it, you will be a traitor to your own people. Make no mistake about it. You think there's risk involved, This is going to go really bad for you, Esther. Because you're going to get discovered. They're going to find out you're a Jew anyway. Esther, have you ever stopped to think what God is doing in the midst of all this? 
Esther, have you ever asked the question, how did you become queen? Well, I became the queen because I am beautiful. No, Esther, I want you to think a wee bit deeper. Why did you become the queen? Why? Because when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, it says, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you're alone of all the Jews will, will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. And we love that last bit. For such a time as this. But you don't know what's going on beforehand. There's a debate and an argument going on here where Esther is basically saying, I don't really feel like putting myself into that position. I'm in a safe place. I'm in a place of comfort. You have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Do you think the king recognized you out of all those 400 women because you were just beautiful? Do you give you the very breath that you breathe? How do you think you got to where you got to? You are an orphan. You shouldn't be in this place. And you know, you'll think, I'm, I'm not really anybody of great significance. I'm not anybody of great importance. But when God calls you, oh, when God calls you and God uses you for such a time as this, you've got to step out. I want to tell you a story. It was a family. Mum was a Christian and the father, he didn't believe in God. And they were sitting around the table and the child asked, could he pray? He thanked God for the food on the table and the father stopped the child and said it's not God who provided the food it's me the checks are written in my name not God's name you're thanking God for this food you should be thanking me for this food what the father failed to realize was this who gave the father the ability to make the money who gave the father the opportunities who gave the father the capacity, the skill, the knowledge? Who gave him the work ethic? It all comes from God. Who gave him the very air to breathe? Who gives it all to us? It all comes from God. Here's a challenge for Esther right now. At this moment, she's being pushed out of her comfort zone. Will you consider what God has given you at this time? This, this moment to be used for his greater purpose. Esther isn't thinking, is, Esther's mind isn't in the place where she's thinking about her blessings, where she's thinking about her benefits, her comfort. She's saying, I don't want to give up in the palace. And what Mordecai says, the thing that you're fixated on is the very thing that's going to consume you. It's the very thing that will consume you. You think living in the palace is freedom. If you don't do what's right, that palace is going to become your prison. We can become just like Esther. We can get consumed with our work. We can settle for our comforts and our possessions. 
We don't want to risk losing these. It's as if Mordecai is reminding Esther of how she came to be in this position. He's reminding her that she didn't get here on her own. Esther, understand that God opened this door for you, for this moment, for this time, for your, your place in history. Esther's story stops and makes you think about your own story, my own story. And here's her response. This is where she's brave. This is where she realizes. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go, go, so let's go, come on, let's go, gather together. See when a woman goes, I tell you, there's no stopping her. Gather together all the Jews who are in Susha and fast for me. She's got to the place where she's reminded again of why God made her fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. She's willing now to put her life on the line. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. This is beautiful. At this point, Esther is not motivated by guilt. This is not a guilt session. This is a grace session that Paula talked about when she was doing the table. You're in the palace, not because of anything you have done, but what God has done. You're sitting here today, not because of anything you have done, but what Christ has done in you. There, but by the grace of God, do go I. You know, guilt is a horrible motivator. That's not how God operates. It's not how he works. He doesn't work by motivation of guilt, but he works by grace. Because I tell you what, every day we all make mistakes. And every day we've got to come before the King of Kings and ask for forgiveness. Look where you, what you've been given. And now, she says, I've been asked to risk my life for the salvation of others. Esther, at this moment in this passage, is being refined. Esther intervenes on behalf of her people and she lives. Jesus intervenes on behalf of us. But in order for us to live, he has to die. A group of ladies were studying at their ladies group. Malachi 3, 3 says, He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. This is a little picture. One of the ladies from the group wanted to look further into this. She wanted to understand what the word refining means. If you re refine something, what does it mean? So she booked an appointment with the silversmith and she asked, could she watch him? Could she sit next to him and observe him to see what he does and how he does it to learn from him? She turns up and the man begins explaining the process of refining silver. He creates a fire and gets it intensely hot and then he holds that silver over the hottest part of the flame. And then he says, this is the most important part. In order for the silver to be refined, it has to be heated over the hottest part. And this is the fire, and so he's holding it, and he's holding it. She's watching it get hotter and hotter, and finally she asks, do you have to sit here and hold it the whole time? And he said, yes. 
I have to sit here and hold it the whole time because if it's in the flames for too long, it will actually ruin the silver. So how do you know when to take it off the flame? He says, that's easy. I take it off the flame when I can see my image in it. You see, when God is calling us to participate, when God is refining us and calling us in those refining moments to step out and to be refined and to live a life that's pleasing to him, he has to hold us and hold us and hold us until he sees his reflection in us. And that's what refining means this morning. So if you're going through a tough time, there's refining going on. If you're going through a tough time, there's that refining going on. Esther had to make the choice. And in that choice, there was, in, that, in that choice, she was being refined. God has you. Maybe you're in a place of anxiety. Maybe God's asking you to step into some new place. You're thinking this is a risk. Or maybe you're thinking it's a refining moment. God has you at this time, at this place, at this position in your community, in your workplace, in your family. But please know this. This is the beauty of the story of Esther. God has his eye on her and he's not leaving her. Mums, he's not leaving you when things are tough. Families, he's not leaving you when things are tough. He's refining her so he can see his image in her. God wants to see you in his image and he wants to see his image in you. Then you can know that God is with you. God, that God is for you for such a time as this. My prayer for you this week, God, that you would, that you would pray and ask God, God, what do you want me to participate in? What do you want me to do for you this week? God, that you would reveal to me that I would be brave, that I would step out in the place where I am, that I would serve you the way you have asked me to serve you and you, I, you have called me. All those things maybe years ago and you've forgotten all of those things, it just reminds you of them. And this morning, just as I finish, Esther was brave, and that's what I want to get across to you this morning. She was brave. And there was our little lashes and her sackcloth. Imagine being covered in that from head to toe. But as her three brave women want to come up and get three little presents here, up at the front, is there anybody brave enough to come up and get three little presents? Come on, come on. who's brave? Step out, go on. Go on. Go ahead. Just take one. Yeah, just take one. You've got to be brave to step out. Go on ahead. And you know what, Margaret? She stepped out and she didn't get a little gift. But that's okay. She stepped out. You've got to be brave. And that's what she did. See, next time, Margaret, you'll be running. There'll be no stopping you, girl. You'll be running. I'm getting that. I'm going for that. That's mine. God, you promised me that. And so often we don't, we hold back. We'll, let, we'll leave it for somebody else. I want you to realize this morning, be brave. 
be brave like Esther for such a time as this. Let us pray. Father God, thank you for this incredible group of mothers. Father God, I pray that you bless them this week. I pray, Father God, that they will, will step out. Father God, I pray for our dads this morning, for our families, for our men and women in this church who aren't mothers or fathers. Father God, let them be brave in this community, Lord God. Father God, give them breakthrough in the situations that they may face. In your precious name, amen.